As always, it's an honor to be here with you this morning as we continue our series on Titus. We're calling uh, Little Book Big Lessons. And, and what we're discovering is that Paul is writing the book of Titus uh, to a man named Titus, who he is sent to Crete to sort of put things in order in the churches on the island of Crete. And, and the plan that he establishes, not just for church leadership, but for believers to, to grow in godliness, is one that's not quick and easy, uh, but it's effective. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, what a challenge it is because we live in such a quick and easy culture. We want things quick and easy. I was thinking about especially this morning as I, was, as I was walking into church, a friend of mine was carrying a power tool in the church. I thought, that's not something you see every day. Uh, he said he was bringing it in to do something during the week, and I saw that, and I thought, you know, for myself, I'm sort of limited in those things. Like, if it can't be fixed with super glue or duct tape, I'm in trouble. And I thought usually they're quick and easy fixes, uh, you know, and, and yet the reality of it is uh, most times uh, they don't last. And, and how often we want the quick and easy, you know, we, we're having issues with our spouse and we want a quick and easy solution. You know, we, we, have, we have issues maybe with something going on, deep hurt, you know, we want the quick and easy solution. We have a hurt relationship with someone, we want a quick and easy solution. And yet the reality of it is God's word is really clear, it's not quick and easy, in fact, the, the solution that God offers, the only true solution, is one that takes time, and it's often hard. It, it's difficult, but it leads to flourishing, that God wants us to flourish. And for us to flourish, it's not quick and easy. It, it's going to take some time. Warren Wisby, he writes this about the book of Titus. He says, Titus is a treasure of a book with much to say about living a godly life in a difficult world. And I read that, and I thought, who among us doesn't need help in that area? living a godly life in a difficult world. The passage we're about to explore, Paul is warning Titus about, uh, warning him about false teachers. He's warning about the fact that these false teachers are, are spreading uh, this really, uh, not just bad teaching, but he's disrupting families and in the Christian communities. He's, he's weakening the witness of the church on the island of Crete. And it's important to remember that the same challenges that that Titus experiences on Crete, the church still experiences really 2,000 years later. Our, our, our challenges may not exist in the exact same way they did on that island of Crete, but they're still there, but we still deal with a clamoring of voices for our attention. We, we still deal with, with false teachers, if you will, who are telling us a way, but not necessarily the way. And so Paul's going to address that in our passage as we jump in, Titus 1, 10 through 16. So we'll read through it, and then as we have been in the habit to do, we'll, we'll dig a little deeper. For there are many, he writes in verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. How many of us agree there's, some, there's a pretty tough passage, some tough words in there? Well, let's dig in a little deeper. 
Titus 1.10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. I, I believe right off the bat that but Paul wants us to understand, well, we got to be able to identify false teachers. We need to be able to identify false teachers. So he actually gives us sort of this, this uh, sort of broad stroke look at what they're doing. He says there's many of them and that they're insubordinate, they're empty talkers, and they're deceivers. They're insubordinate to, to, to church authority. And, and they speak nonsense, but although they're speaking nonsense, they're deceiving those who will listen to them. And I was thinking about this empty talking, and it's so true that if we in the church are empty talkers and, and not doers of, of love, of peace, of, of mercy, of, of justice, we morally take our place alongside the false teachers of Crete. And that's what the teachers were doing, empty talkers. They were saying one thing, they were doing another. And, and some of the false teachers are of the circumcision party. Now, who's the circumcision party? We believe they're Jewish Christians who would say things that contradicted the gospel. In other words, they taught you'd have to become a Jew before you became a Christian. Now, although this was all settled in the first Jerusalem council recorded for us in the book of Acts, they, they taught things like that. They taught that, for instance, you had to, if you were a male, be circumcised before you became a Christian. And so you can see why that was probably uh, hindering some people from wanting to become part of the church. And, and they were teaching many other things that were causing disruption. They weren't the only false teachers, but they're among the false teachers. We must identify false teachers. Then we read in, in Titus 1, 11 through 13, that they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, I'll think about that for a minute. That's a pretty powerful statement that, that one of their prophets has said. But Paul is making the point that we must realize the impact of false teachers and, and to silence them. That, that we have to understand the impact of false teachers. It's no small thing that's happening, and that's our responsibility to silence them. Now, they must be silenced, he says. I find it interesting that the word there in the original language for silenced means to reason. It, it, it's a process of reasoning. In other words, our silencing of them is not to be by force, it's not to be violent. It's teaching, it's correcting with the truth. And I think that's so important to keep in mind because if we aren't careful, we'll be more interested in winning the argument than winning the person. Have you been there? If we're not careful, we'll be more concerned with winning the argument than winning the person. And Paul is certainly not saying that's what we should do. His concern is for the person that we'll look at in a minute. They're upsetting whole families. Because individuals in a family are listening and it's calling, causing division. We got to be careful. Philip's translation, I love the way he describes them. He says, they teach for the sake of what they can get. It's a selfish. They're not teaching to spread the gospel. They're not, they're not preaching so people can find liberty or freedom. They're, they're preaching because they're getting something out of it. it. It's selfish. And we don't have to look very far to discover that the false teachers may not be wearing the same thing they wore in the day of Titus. They may not be teaching the same thing as they taught in Crete, but they're ever present in every age of the church. 
I got some friends, for instance, who will say, I listen to so-and-so because every time I listen to that preacher, I feel better about myself. And I thought, well, if every time you listen to the gospel, you feel better about yourself, you may want to question what you're hearing. Now, understand this. I don't mean that if you hear the gospel preach that you should feel like a horrible person or that you should feel like always beaten down on. But if there's never a holy ouch moment when a preacher's preaching the gospel, you're not hearing the gospel. Because there's times when I'm even reading the gospel, when I'm reading scripture, where I hit a part where I'm like, ow, that's an area I need to grow. But I don't want to grow. Yeah, just like you, I want it quick and easy. I don't want to do that. Anyone ever been there? Ever read the word and been reminded that you're to forgive somebody and you go, Lord, I just really want to forgive them. Like they hurt me. And the Lord reminds you that forgiveness isn't just for them, it's for you. Have you ever read the word and realized that you're supposed to love the unlovable and you're like, wow, I just really don't want to love that person. You follow what I'm saying? And so we want to be careful because we live in a day and age just like has always been within the church, apparently, where there's some people who are just going to say things to make you think you're okay. I mean, it'd be like a couple coming into my office who are having marriage issues, and when they sit there, I don't really want to hurt their feelings, and so I say, you're doing everything perfect. Like, I wouldn't change a thing. You know, I think you're living 100% by God's word. That's why your marriage is so lousy. Go do it, you know, feel good about yourself. How many of you think that'd be good counseling? But sometimes, isn't that really what we want to hear? I'm okay. I'm okay just the way I am. And yet God's word says, no, there's times we need to change. There's times we need to do the hard work. There's times we need to force ourselves to say, God, help me love. Help me be a servant. Help me do the things I don't want to do so that I can live the way that you've called me to live so I can flourish the way you've created me to flourish. Not quick and easy. Hard, takes time, but really worth it. One of the first questions I usually ask a couple is, do you really want to grow together? Do you really want this to work? And who are you listening to? Because I want to know what voices that the gospel's competing against. If they already have 10 voices telling them to do it their own way, and their own way hasn't been working, then guess what? Those 10 voices are going up against the gospel. Who are you going to surrender to? Who are you going to listen to? And so Paul's talking about this. He said, you know, that, that really the false teachers are lying and doing what they're doing for their own selfish ambition. They're interesting and sort of getting something out of this, not helping other people. And if that isn't enough, he talks about the culture in which these false teachers are teaching. And he says that one of your own prophets says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And you read that and you go, wow, that's crazy. Until Paul says, by the way, this is true. Think about that. Not only is uh, one of their own prophets, and by the way, it's attributed to Epimenides from the 6th century BC who writes this. One of their philosophers, a Cretan himself, says, listen, this is my culture. This is what I live in. Paul says, I've been to Crete, and it's, it's true. That lying is part of this culture, that, that, that it's, it's, a, it's a culture that, that seeks to deceive, and, 
even the Greeks who were known to be deceivers themselves. So I, I can't overstate this. So in the Greco-Roman world, if you were doing business with, with an actual Greek, you would be careful because they were known to be deceivers and really good at it. They looked down on the Cretans because they deceived even worse than they did. Like, that's bad, right? That's like a thief saying, I'm a really good thief, but man, they're a worse thief than me, and I don't even hang around. What? What's going on here? So much so that the Greeks created a verb to Cretanize. So if you Cretanize somebody, it meant you were really lying and deceiving them. And this was the culture. It really was the culture. Were all Cretans liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons? Of course not. But enough of a culture was that Paul was able to affirm, no, no, he knew what he was talking about. This is where Crete is going and sharing the gospel. These are where these false teachers are flourishing. And I don't know about you, but I, I get like a sick type of comfort from this. Because I, I look at our culture and sometimes I think that our culture is just heading in the wrong direction. There's these issues and those issues. And I go, where's the hope? And I'm reminded of this statement in, in Titus about the Cretans. And I'm reminded of what changed. We know historically that shortly after this period when Paul writes this letter, not too long down the road, that to be Cretan actually was synonymous with being Christian. But there was a time in the Greco-Roman world where, where the gospel of Jesus Christ so impacted the culture on the island of Crete that to be Cretanized no longer meant to be a liar or a deceiver, but meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And when I look at that, I'm like, I think every single Christian in every single time period have looked back and said, oh, our culture, it's, it's, it's hopeless. And, and, and the Lord says, I'm the God who spoke the world into existence. There's no such thing as hopelessness in me. There's hope. There's hope for your culture. There's hope for your marriage. There's hope for your broken heart. There's hope. There's freedom in Christ. There's, there's strongholds demolished in the name of Jesus. But Paul does says, rebuke them sharply. And re why rebuke them sharply? He's saying, don't, don't, don't beat around the corner. Like, say what's true. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone that you were correcting, but you beat around the bush and you were left and go, I don't think they got what I said. And the answer is because they didn't hear you. I've had friends who said, hey, I, I was trying to tell my wife that, that this whatever was hurting me or something. And I said, well, I don't think they heard me. And I said, well, what did you say to them? And they said it to me. And I said, well, because you didn't say it. Right? One of the things that always sort of blows my mind is when I hear a couple will say, you know, well, I shouldn't have to say it. Huh? Like, how does that work? I don't know about you and your marriage, but my wife and I haven't really figured out telepathy. Like if we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna better each other, then we have to say it. Like you have to use words. You can write them if you want, but it has to be words. If you're right, you better have better handwriting than mine. But you gotta have words. Speak the truth, Paul says. Speak sharply, not mean. Speak sharply. Say what's wrong. And I love the fact that he's not just saying it like get up in their face. He says that they may be sound in the faith. Speak the truth. Correct so that they may repent and follow Jesus. Again, you're not just winning an argument, you're trying to win a person. Paul hoped that the false teachers would be corrected. Paul always 
when he writes, because he's inspired by the Spirit of God, has this redemptive element in everything he shares with us. All of God's word has a redemptive element in it. And so as Paul's writing to Titus, who's on this island of people who are known to be liars and deceivers and all these false teachers, he's saying, rebuke them sharply, speak the truth, but do it in the hope that they will return to Jesus or come to know Jesus. Isn't that a different way of looking at things than we often do? Like, here's the reality. As the church, and this is going to sound quite arrogant, but I don't stand on my own wisdom. I, I stand on the wisdom of God's word. I know we're right. Like, I don't doubt it. it it's God's word. I believe it. And so it's not like I'm right. If I'm right, I'm only right when I'm in alignment with the one who's right. You follow what I'm saying? I don't say it arrogantly. So I don't have to win an argument. Because if someone doesn't believe, they've already lost. My hope is, is that when conversations can happen, but the person will let the truth penetrate them so they can see the truth and come and know the truth. And come and know the truth. And that's what Paul's writing here. And then we'll pick up in our last part of the passage here, the second part of verse 13 for context. We'll read down to 16. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith and devoting themselves to, not to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, un unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their, by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I believe Paul's furtherly, inst furtherly instructing us to not just correct false teachers, but seek to live correctly. Not just that we're going to correct false teachers, but we ourselves are going to take the responsibility to live correctly. What's happening? Well, there are those who are devoting themselves to Jewish myths. They're engaging in speculative interpretation of the Old Testament, and they're, they're bringing up teachings which just aren't gospel truth. But Paul writes, here's the predicament, really. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. He's saying, if you know the truth, the truth will purify you, but if you're living according to a lie, then you're going to be defiled. You're going to have, you're going to have issues. He's saying, so we also have to take responsibility that we're living correctly. Now, here's the reality. I understand that you're sitting there probably saying like I wouldn't, saying, you know, well, I'm not a perfect example. I still have my moments. Well, so did Paul. Paul said, I haven't already achieved it, but I press on to that which is ahead of me, that prize. But follow me, he says, as I follow Christ. And we should all be able to say that. Follow me as I follow Christ. I'm heading in the right direction. I, I may not always look like, Paul writes it this way to the Corinthians. He says, I've taken the glory of God and put it in earthen vessels. Fragile things. The earthen vessel, that's us. You say, well, I feel fragile. Well, you are fragile without God, but with the glory of God in you, you're quite remarkable. Quite an example to the world around you. You may not realize this, but when you said yes to Jesus, you said yes to being a teacher. You said, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. You said, you mean to preach, stand up front like you do? No, no, no. We teach every single day when we go into the places where we live, where we work, where we go to school and play. That we're not just correcting people by the way that we, we use our words, but we're correcting people by the way we live our lives. And Paul's challenging us with that. 
In fact, Paul is confronting these false teachers both with the test of character and of conduct. The test of conduct measures the knowledge of God through our actions and our claims. Because there's just no doubt, bad doctrine and bad behavior often go together. A poor understanding of God's word and poor behavior often go together. Like it's really hard to, to, to spend time in God's word and, and ask God to, to help his word as we seek to master it, master us, and not become more and more like Jesus. It's difficult for that to happen. But here's the problem. And I don't know if it's true or not. The stat hasn't changed much over the years, but I saw a stat, saw many a stat that says that only 15% of church-going believers actually read the word of God on a regular basis. Now, I don't know if that's true, because I've not talked to every Christian in the United States. I don't even, I haven't even talked to they, the ones who put the thing together. But if that's remotely true, it explains some things. To not be in God's word and let God's word form us is, is detriment to the church. I was speaking to someone after last service. I said, it's much like asking people to come. Come to our church. Come, come see service on Sunday and show up, but having no one in the church to which they can follow as they follow Jesus. How many of you think that would be helpful? None of us. So we need to be in the word. I say this quite often because it's so true. But the Holy Spirit uses the word of God we know, not the word of God we don't know to transform us. So we need to be in it on a regular basis and growing through it and letting our lives change as we read it. Because the hypocrisy of the false teacher is that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. He says they're detestable, disobedient, not fit for any good work. The real test of purity is the heart. If thinking and conscience are wrong, actions are seldom right. But when we surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ, and allow him to do a work in us, things become possible that weren't. Forgiveness becomes possible. Love, mercy, compassion become possible. His eyes, his ears become our eyes and ears. We begin to see things we never saw before. We begin to hear things we never heard in the way that they are meant to be heard. In other words, we can tell that something's a lie, something's true, something's not right. Something is. It transforms every relationship we have. It allows us to be used by him to, to not just see our own lives fortified in him, but, but to actually be the witness that he's called us to be in the world in which we exist. No longer do we, do we look at the world and think, my goodness, how in the world am I going to make it through this? We know we're going to make it through it because we have Jesus Christ. We know the end. The end is good for us as Christians. Amen. What we do know also is that every single day by the power of God, we can be who he wants us to be in the situations we find ourselves in. Think about that. Do you believe that this morning? What are you going through? That you may be tempted to say, I don't have enough. I want to say, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have enough. But if you do, you have more than enough. More than enough. You say, more than enough to have the situation end the way I want it to? Wouldn't that be nice? No. But to be victorious no matter what the circumstance is. 
See, there's one type of God that, that people worship for years, and that is if I can just sort of coerce him and make him see things my way, then everything will be the way I want it, as if, if it was my way, it would be the best way, which of course it's not. It's only the best way if it's his way. So we don't worship a God who I'm trying to change his mind. I'm worshiping a God who I say, Lord, change mine. I don't pray, Lord, may my will be done. May, may my kingdom come on earth as it's in heaven. What do we pray? May your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as is in heaven. And Paul says, confront those who are teaching something otherwise and commit yourself to the life-changing truth of the gospel. See, I believe that the most effective antidote to a false teacher is a true teacher. Most effective antidote to a false teacher is a true teacher. And Paul's Warning of Titus is important to us. We must identify false teachers. And the only way to identify them is by knowing the gospel truth. It's the only way. How do I know when someone is teaching something contrary to scripture? By knowing scripture. By taking it to scripture. By saying, is that really what the word of God says? Is that really in context? Context, after all, is king. Is that really what God means in his word? Not only do we know God's words, we can identify false teachers. We must realize the impact of false teachers and silence them. But the only way we can really silence them is by knowing God's word too, right? Otherwise, what are you going to say? I don't like what you say? Who cares? But if you can go to them with the gospel truth and say, well, listen, but this is what the word says. You're going to say something contrary to it. You need to Stop. You're hurting others. You're hurting yourself. Speak the truth in love. We must correct false teachers while, speak, while seeking to live correctly. We correct others not only with right words, but right living. Living what we preach ultimately gives us much more authority when we share words. Isn't that true? The all do, don't do as I do, do as I say. What a bunch of garbage. Right? Now, you can say to someone, don't do as I did. Ever been there? I wasn't too far on my Christian journey when I realized I'd rather learn from someone else's mistakes than make them myself. So if you made mistakes, just tell me. I don't want to make them. I want to learn from your mistakes. Much less painful than learning from mine. Anyone ever find that to be true? But I'll tell you what, if you're living the truth, you're someone I want to hang around. I want to learn from you. I want to learn from you, all the good, the bad, and the ugly. I was watching a documentary on, auto, on art appraisers. Yeah, I know, I'm one of those boring people. And, and I was watching it, I thought it was sort of interesting, and I, I believe it's true, at least they said it. It said that a skilled appraiser often identif can identify counterfeit paintings because they spend so much time investigating masterpieces. I want you to think about that for a minute. They spend so much time looking at the authentic masterpiece that when someone tries to bring them a counterfeit, they know it's not real because they know what a masterpiece is. And I thought, that's so interesting and, and shows that there's people much smarter than me because if I was going to put it together, I'd say, well, study counterfeits, right? Study counterfeits and you'll know, right? That this is like, no, 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 study masterpieces is what they said and then you'll know a counterfeit when it comes. And I thought, how... how how fruitless it is sometimes as us as believers that we, we try to study, you know, what are they teaching? I need to know what other people are teaching so I know what they're teaching. And the reality is, no, 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 spend time in the word of God. Know the gospel. 
So when false teaching comes that way, you know what the authentic teaching of Jesus Christ is, and you'll know what the counterfeit is. So then, well, you're really truly going to know. And I think to myself, well, that's not quick and that's not easy. It takes time. It takes hard work. Again, I was sharing with the same friend in between services, and he came to second service, so you get extra. But, uh, but we were talking about this, and I thought, there's really no excuse anymore. Like, there was a day and age where maybe you didn't have the Bible memorized, and maybe you don't have a great memory, and it's hard. And someone would say, well, that's all right, just carry the Bible as much as you can. But you could easily use the excuse, I forgot my Bible today, so I can't read it. I have this period of time where I could, but I just can't read it because I don't have it with me. How many of you have a cell phone? That excuse is gone. Gone. Like, I probably have like 80 translations of Scripture on my phone. And so I can't say, well, I forgot my Bible. Oh, you forgot your phone? No, I never forget my phone. Then you didn't forget your Bible. What a great age unless you want to make excuses. We can be in the Word so much. We have so much available to us. Let's dig in. John 10, 27, Jesus is speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. All the voices clamoring for our attention, but he says, no, 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 my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. In the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the other conflicting voices, I know the voice of Christ. Why? Because I know his word. I know how he speaks. I know what he speaks. And then there are these words I'll close with this morning. John 8, 31 through 32. If you abide in God's word, you're truly Christ's disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Does anyone need freedom this morning? Anyone need stronghold broken this morning? Anyone need real life in Christ? The essence, to heed Paul's warning, is just as true today as it was when he wrote it to Titus, to be vigilant and resolute, confronting false teachers, safeguarding the integrity of the gospel. But it begins by us knowing it, embodying it, then confronting it in the hope that others will come to know him. Now, I don't know where you are this morning, but I just want to encourage you. But if you're doing life on your own, it's not going to work. God created us to flourish only in him. I didn't write the rules. The creator did. So if you need freedom, it's only found in Jesus. If you have a stronghold in your life that needs broken, it can only be found in Jesus. If you are on a healing journey and you're seeking to find healing elsewhere, it's only found in Jesus. He doesn't use other people. Sure, he does, but you come to him and then he leads you down the path of healing. He leads you down the path of that freedom. He's created us to do life with him and one another. That's why the church exists, to be a light to the world and encouragement to one another. That's why I'm so thankful that I'm a part of God's church. Wherever you find yourself this morning, won't you be open to the Lord? Say, Lord, you're working. I feel you working here this morning. Draw me to you. Draw me to you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your profound love. Thank you for your word that speaks truth to us, life-giving truth, offers us freedom, hope, eternal life. I pray, Father, as anyone in this room this morning who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, that perhaps even now in the quietness of their heart, they say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins, being resurrected for my salvation. 
but they'd say yes to you, Lord Jesus. God, for those of us who have made a decision to follow you days, months, years ago, it doesn't really matter. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, would we be willing to take the next step of faith with you? For as you've blessed us gathering, I pray that as we scatter in just a moment throughout this region, that you would use us to share your love and message with those around us. That Lord God, when you're glorified in and through us, but not only are we blessed, but we're able to bless others. God, thank you for meeting us where we're at, but not expecting to stay where we're at because where you take us is always better. And mostly, again, thank you for loving us so completely, so fully, so overwhelmingly. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.